Good morning, New Spring. Hasn't it been great already? Man, fantastic worship experience. And I love the little Stevie Ray there at the end. It's been really great already. Uh, we're in a series that's called Capitalized, and it's all about making a new beginning. And this is the second week of the series. But for the last two weeks, what I've been talking to you about is how that God puts a natural rhythm into our world. And we've, we've, we've discovered in the talk two weeks ago that Every day, every 24 hours, God gives us a picture of, of death and resurrection. And then here we are at the beginning of a new year. Every 365 days, God gives us uh, an awareness that life can have a new start. And we've been talking about that new start and how to have it. But the series that we're in right now is about being able to start over with what you have. Last week, we went to ground zero and we said, would it be possible to start over if you had absolutely no resources at all? If you had nobody to call, no favors to call in, no money in the bank? Uh, no friends left. Would it be possible to start over again? The reason why I felt like it was important for us to just strip it down to bare metal there is that none of us are in that situation. All of us have some friends. All of us have some resources. All of us have some money and so on. But I just wanted you to see that even if you didn't have anything left, you could still start over. And then I, I promised you that for the next four weeks, which today will be the first of those four weeks, that I'd be talking to you about four key resources all of us have to be able to begin again. And today I'm going to give you the first. But let me just, let me just say this that chances are, as I, as I shared with you last week, you're somewhere along the spectrum of craving a new beginning. For instance, if you're sitting in the rubble of a life totally screwed up, the idea of a new beginning is very wonderful. And, and some of us are there, and I've been there. Um, and, and so this, this information is going to be helpful to you because you're going to say, I've got to just rebuild from scratch. Good, there'll be stuff for you. But there'll be others of you here that will say, well, my life's not in a total rubble. I'm actually doing pretty well, but I feel like I'm leaving excellence on the table. I think I'm leaving greatness on the table, and I don't want to leave greatness on the table. I, I want to begin again. I want to take where I am right now and go to a whole new place. And I honestly believe that for those of you who are in that category, this will be, this will be probably this will be prime stuff for you. Because for those of you who are doing pretty well, but you're saying to yourself, I could be so much more. I, I could be so much more excellent. I think we're really going to be talking this, for these next four weeks in a way that's going to be totally helpful to you. <laughs> Today, in the very, first, the very first thing that you have, the very first resource you have to leverage, I'm going to surprise you a little bit, maybe. And that is people. You know, we joke about, I'm going to have my people talk to your people, but all of us have people. And I want to talk to you about the people that you have in your life and what an important, what an important asset that is. The moment I get that out of my mouth, I know I need to draw a distinction. There's a lot of difference between using people and leveraging, leveraging relationships. Now, when I talk about using people, I think when we get that idea in our head of you know, people that use people, what we're talking about is we're talking about taking unfair advantage of someone to get what we want out of life. Now, that's wrong. That's dead wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. But leveraging relationships goes like this. If we were to articulate it in the first person, it would sound something like this. I know that God wants me to be great. You do know that God loves you and, and wants to help you, right? 
I mean, if, if there was one, one message I could get across to you, how many times have I heard my father start messages with those, with those two statements? God loves you and he wants to help you. That's a fact. God does love you. If you have the idea that God is some sort of cosmic sadist up in heaven with a hammer just waiting for you to do wrong, you totally miss the idea of God. God loves you and he wants to help you. Well, if I were to put in the first person the, the statement of, of, of leveraging resources, it would go something like this. God wants to help me. And I can't live life by myself. I can't do it by myself. God is going to bring people into my life who are going to be like signposts that will help me and direct me, and there'll be resources for me. As I got ready for the talk for the first time last night, my mind went back to when I first started in the, in the pastorate. I was 20 years old. I was, still, I was a senior in college, and I was going to college in Arlington, Texas. And um, a minister in a little, there was a little community called Mansfield, uh, in between Fort Worth and, and the country. And Mansfield was sort of like the border between the country and bedroom communities. And, and Jack Miles passed a little country church on the outskirts of, of Mansfield, probably only 175, 200 people. And I remember he called me and he asked me, would you be willing to come out and become my associate pastor? Now, I'm 20 years old and I'm not even graduated from college yet. But I was impressed with that, that he would take a chance on me. But he was very good to me. But not only did he, did he give me a great opportunity and a great chance my senior year in college, but he did something for me that I really appreciate as I've gotten older. He would invite me to his home for lunch every day when I got home from the campus. And his wife would make lunch for the three of us, and we would sit and talk. And, and Jack would just give me words of wisdom. <laughs> he was a friend of my father. He's about my father's age. But what I remember most, if you see me chuckling, what I remember most about Jack on a personal sense, was that he was from Louisiana, and he had this thick, heavy Cajun accent, and he was just a hoot to listen to. But he was real frank, and, and he sat across the table for me one day, and he said, Mark, I think you're really going to go somewhere. He said, I just, and I was, there was a kind thing for him to say, but he said, I kind of watch you, and he said, I think you're going to go to the top. But he said, I want you to remember something. You won't get there by yourself, and don't forget the people who helped you on the way up. And it's funny, after all these years, this is 33 years later, I remember what Jack told me. You can't do it by yourself, and don't forget the people who help you on the way up. When I talk about leveraging resources, that's what I'm talking about. I'm saying God is going to strategically place people in your life who are going to be signposts that say this way to excellence, that if you listen to them, learn from them, hang with them, it's going to make a huge difference in whether you go to the top or whether you go to the bottom or you're somewhere in the middle. Let me give you the Bible on that, because you didn't come to hear me this morning. I'm nobody. I'm just a postman. You came to hear from God. Here's his message to you when it comes to influence. This is so simple, it's like breaking a BB, okay? Proverbs 13, verse 20, it says, Become wise by walking with the wise. Hang out with fools and watch your life fall to pieces. How about that? See, you know, our human pride wants to say, no, that's not the case, we, 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 we don't want to believe that the people we hang with have any influence on us. Because our, our human pride says, hey, I'm a self-contained unit. I can do whatever I want to do, think however I want to think. It doesn't matter. I can have good people around me. It doesn't influence me. I can have bad people around me. It, it doesn't influence me. I can remember my parents when I was a teenager telling me, I don't know if those are good friends for you. And isn't it true that your parents don't know anything when you're 16? You know, they go on this sort of bell curve, you know, like they know so much when you're a kid and they just drop off the edge of the earth, don't know a thing. I remember when we had our first kid, Mary Alice and I, it was amazing how smart my parents got. <laughs> and now they're just geniuses. <laughs> when I was 16, I had friends and my parents said, I don't think you should hang with them. I don't think they're good friends for you. And I'm thinking, why not? You don't know anything about them. And my parents would say, well, look, they have these issues in their life. And I'm saying, hey, don't bother me. I don't have these issues. 
It's not a problem for me. What is God saying? And i got to tell you this, after watching Observing Humanity for, in my career for the last 33 years, i got to tell you, that's exactly right. If you, if you hang with the wise, if you, and it's not smart there, it says wise. These are people who know how to live. If you hang with the wise, they're going to have an influence on you, and you're going to go up with them. But the Bible says if you hang with fools, you're going to watch your life fall to pieces. So it's very, very important who we hang with, who is, maybe this is the best way of saying it, it's very important who's in our inner circle. And for some of us, today's talk, and I'm not going to suggest anything to you. I'm just going to give you the, I'm going to install the program. You're the one who has to feed the information. But for some of us, we're going to have some people that we're going to need to cut from our herd. When we hear today's talk and we think about what God has got to say, we're going to say, that person, I'm I'm going somewhere and that person can't go with me. Or it could be that there's somebody in your life that perhaps you're going to be saying, I really need to think more about leveraging that relationship. Okay? You got it? We're talking about beginning again, and we're talking about leveraging the resource of people that God has strategically placed in our lives. Let me take you back to an Old Testament book, and the book is called Ruth. It's only four chapters long, and I hope that you read it. I'm going to just give you a little synopsis, maybe the cliff note version today. But I hope that you'll go home this afternoon and just read the four chapters because it is a phenomenal book. It is a romance story. It is a love story. It's just a cool, cool book. Ruth is one of the two books in the Bible that is named after a woman. The other book, we're not surprised, Esther, uh, was a young Jewish girl, very honorable Jewish girl, who became a Persian queen and saved her people. She was a superhero. So we're not surprised that she gets a book. But we're a little bit surprised that Ruth gets a book. Let me tell you a little bit about how Ruth came up. <laughs> First of all, Ruth wasn't a Jew. She was a Moabitess. She came up, you talk about on the wrong side of the tracks. You talk about coming up in a bad neighborhood. Ruth came up that way. Uh, when I say that she was a, a, a person of, of Moabite ancestry, let me tell you a little bit about the Moabites. Uh, the Moabites were a nation that was founded in incest. And if, you, if you, some of you are reading through the one-year Bible, and if you are, you read this week about how the Moabites got started. There was a, a man who wound up sleeping with his daughter. He was so drunk, he didn't know when she came in. He didn't know when she left. He conceived a child. The boy's name was Moab. That's how the nation of Moab got started, in, in drunkenness and incest. And it went down from there. And you say, how could it go down from there? Well, these people were just so godless that the only worship experience they had is when they got together, they were basically, basically prostitution was their deal. They just, they, it just didn't matter who they slept with. It just got crazy. That's, that's how they worshiped. And then beyond that, somebody got the bright idea that maybe the reason why the gods were unhappy with them was that they weren't sacrificing enough. And so they built this god called Molech, or, or, or sometimes it's called Chemosh. And, and this god was like a big oven with a hollowed-out stomach. And they placed their children live in this oven. And burn them alive as a sacrifice to their God in the hopes of, of getting the favor of their God. <laughs> That's how Ruth grew up. You don't think that she's the kind of person most likely to get a book in the Bible named after her. But that was her start. She needed a new beginning, right? Well, she got the ultimate new beginning, and we're going to talk about that today. But let, let's, just, let's just see Ruth, if we can, when she's a little girl, you know, growing up in her neighborhood, and, and it's crazy. And, you know, but one thing about it, she lives in a rich place. I mean, they're, they're all screwed up, but at least they're very wealthy. And that's kind of the way her world was, something like America. In any event, that's for another talk. <laughs> one day, Ruth's playing in her cul-de-sac, and she looks down. There's a moving truck coming in there and unloading a family. And she's kind of watching and noticing that the family has two boys. 
And I imagine by this point, Ruth is a young teenager, and that just catches her attention. Here's a family moving in her neighborhood, two boys. She's kind of watching the truck unload. And, and let me just take a moment, give you a time out, and tell you who this family is that's moving into Ruth's neighborhood. The guy, the dad's name is Elimelech. He's a Jew. His name means, my God is king. His wife's name is Naomi. She's a beautiful young, young mother. And Naomi means pleasant. I'm guessing she got the name because she was, a, she was hot. She was a beautiful woman. And, and then they have two boys, Malin and Kilian. And they're moving into Ruth's neighborhood because they live in a place or they have lived in a place called Bethlehem. Does that ring a bell? The name Bethlehem means house of bread. But that must have been a cruel irony because they were going through 2009 in Bethlehem. It was the worst economic year in history, but far worse than our economic year because people didn't have enough food to eat. There was a famine in the land. Wouldn't that be cruel to live in a place called House of Bread, not enough food to eat? So Elimelech has the bright idea. How many of you heads of households, men or women, have had some bright ideas in time past of thinking this is a solution, only later to think that was crazy. What was I thinking? But Elimelech said, well, we need to just move out of Bethlehem for a few months, go down to Moab. It's the home of the 499 buffet. We'll go down there, and, and we'll live for a few months, and then we'll come back when everything straightens out. Hence the moving van. Hence Ruth watching this family unload. But a year later, there's another vehicle in front of the house, and it's not a moving van. It's a hearse because Elimelech dies. And now Naomi and the two boys are caught in the twilight zone. They can't go home, and they, can't, they, don't, this, they don't feel at home in Moab. But, I mean, how do you go back to Bethlehem? Because the head of the household, the provider, is dead. At least in Moab, there are some jobs where the boys can get work. And so sure enough that they stayed there. And, and in time, Ruth and her sister Orpah, not Oprah, it's real close. Just change one letter, and it would be. But Ruth and her sister Orpah get interested in the two boys, and they get together, and they get married. But unfortunately, the hearse comes back two more times to the house as both in succession, Malon and Kilian die. And now all that's left in the household is just Naomi and two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, and ten unpleasant years that have passed. Naomi gets a text message from Bethlehem that things are better. Y'all give me a little space, all right? Things are better in Bethlehem. And Naomi is saying to the girls, I guess I'm going to go home. And the girls say, we'll go with you. And Naomi says, fine, whatever. And they, they take off and they get to the city limits. And finally Naomi says, hey, girls, listen, listen, listen. This is not a good idea. I, and I'm, this is not in the Bible, but I'm telling you this is what she's inferring. I'm going to go back home. I, I've, my life is in shambles. They're going to wonder what in the world has happened to you. And on top of that, you girls are from Moab. And if you go with me to Bethlehem, they're going to look at you. And they're going to wonder what you're doing there. And they're, not going, they're going to be prejudiced against you. And I don't even know how I'm going to exist. And so if I go back to Bethlehem, you know, it could really be a bad experience for you girls. And after all, you need to go back home. Now, let's take, take a time out for a moment. Naomi is the person I'm talking about who is the resource for Ruth. Naomi will be the key to Ruth having a completely new start. But here's the irony. You know sometimes the most important people in your life who are trying to do the right thing, who will be the people who can help you, are themselves going through hard times. 
And our culture teaches us that if we don't have anything to give someone in, in the sense of what this world considers important, that we don't have anything to give. And I honestly believe that that's why Naomi said to the girls, y'all need to go back home because I don't have anything left to give you. I don't have any money. Obviously, I don't have any more living sons. And Naomi said, even if I were to get married and get pregnant and have sons, you wouldn't want to wait around for them to grow up. Naomi's, Naomi's just saying, I don't have anything left to give you. Why don't you go on back home to your people and to your gods? I want to pick it up right there in the Bible. In Ruth chapter 1. Again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. If you want greatness and if you want to leverage the important relationships in your life, pay attention to what Ruth is doing. The Bible says Ruth clung tightly. The Hebrew word there is the word for glue. In effect, Ruth just glued herself to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave. It's kind of funny. We often hear ministers use these words in weddings, you know. But it, the first time these words were said, they weren't said from a man to a woman. They were said from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. Let's this one more time. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Look at these four statements. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. We talk to you about those four things. We'll go home. Or I won't. I've got another service. <laughs> Number one, where you go, I will go. Think. Think what's inherent in that statement. First of all, what Ruth is saying to Naomi is you're going someplace. If you want to know in your life the people to glue yourself to, think about the people who are going someplace. I mean, how many people in our lives are going nowhere? They may be talented, they may be skilled, they may be smart, but they're not going anywhere. They're in a, they're in sort of a, you know, a lifelong holding pattern. They're just circling the airport all the time. They do the same thing on Monday morning. They do the same thing on Friday night. You know, they're in the same haze on Saturday, you know, and they just do it again and again and again and again and again. If they make mistakes, they repeat the same stupid mistakes over and over and over again. They're not going anywhere. I, I, I got to tell you something. I have the joy of pastoring thousands of people and working with thousands of people out, even outside of New Spring. And one thing that always amazes me is sometimes some of the most talented, rich people I ever run into are going nowhere. And yet I run into people that have everything seemingly stacked against them who are living paycheck to paycheck, and they're going somewhere. If I ask you a question, and by the way, as I said, I'm just going to give you the program. You've got to feed in the information. Who in your life would you look at today and say, that person's going somewhere? You'll know. Because a lot of people, in fact, I think here's the point. I think this is, this is the minority group in your life. Most people are going nowhere. Most people are thinking about how they can keep money coming in, how they can pay their bills, how they can you know, have more sex, how they can you know, enjoy life more, how they can have more fun, how they can buy more possessions. That's a recipe for just, just going in circles. 
You see, here's the point. Naomi said to Ruth, hey, listen, if you go with me, it ain't going to be pleasant. It's not. It's not going to be an exciting place. Ruth, you need to go back home because at least you'll be familiar there. You'll be, the people there will know you and you will know them and you will know how to eat and you will know how to get food and you'll know how to get a paycheck. You just need to go back to Moab because everything is familiar there. And Ruth is saying, I can't do that because nobody's going anywhere in Moab. Don't you want to go somewhere in life? To all of you who are young, could I tell you what old people tell young people? (laughs) Life gets away from you real fast. And here you'll be 45 years old thinking, what the heck happened to me? You'll be 60 years old and you're thinking, where'd it go? Did you want to go someplace? Glue yourself to people who are going someplace. And that's the first thing Naomi said. Where you go, I will go. You're going someplace. If I stay in Moab, I'm going nowhere. I'm going with you. Number two, she said, where you live, I'll live. Inherent in that statement is, Naomi, you know how to live. (laughs) Not many people know how to live. My grandfather told my dad when he was on his deathbed. He called him by his first name and said, just now learned how to live. And now it's time to die. He was a successful man in many ways, and and maybe he was overstating that, but I think that many of us could be in that category. He was saying, just now, know how to live, and it's time to die. Why did Ruth say that to Naomi? For all of you who are very young, and, and, and I guess I'm targeting those of you who are very young because I think you have the most to gain from today's talk. Although, as I said last week, if you're not dead, you're not done. For all of you who are young, there could be a little difficulty in these next two suggestions because it's always easier to hang with people that are going nowhere. The people who know how to live usually have two qualities. Number one is they've lived for a while. (laughs) And that means paying attention to those who are older. One of the things that I, I became lead pastor when I was very young. I was in my very, very, very early 30s when I became lead pastor. And one of the things that I did even then and I continue to do is I try to cultivate friendships with pastors who are like 20 years older than myself who still think young. And that has helped me so many times. I have some built-in mentors in my life. I mean, I don't have any kind of, you know, official scheduled mentorship program going on, nothing like that. I just pick up a phone call and say, hey, here's what I'm wrestling with. What do you think about this? Why? Because they've lived, people, people, the people who know how to live usually have lived for a while. They have gained some experience. And here's the thing. If somebody else screws up and learns from that lesson, I'd rather not screw up. I'd rather learn from them. And the second thing is, what you're going to discover is the people who know how to live usually have gone through some really hard things. It's so interesting, and I don't have time to keep this de- developing, but I, I just, don't you find this interesting? There's a sort of irony here. R- Naomi is telling Ruth, hey, I don't have anything to give you because my life is just, I feel like I've been kicked around. I feel like I've been kicked to the curb. And, and my life, is, I, I just, I, my life is, is filled with sorrow. I don't have anything left to give you. And, and I, I honestly believe, and, and, and I don't, when we get to heaven, I, I'm going to bet you something. I, I don't know how you win a bet in heaven, but I'm, I'm going to bet you when we get to heaven, this is what Ruth was thinking. If I'm wrong, then I'll, I'll fess up when we get there. The reason why I think Ruth looked at Naomi and said, you know how to live, is Ruth had watched Naomi go through three life-crushing experiences. 
She had watched her go to the cemetery three times and leave behind the bodies of her husband and her two sons, and Ruth had watched how Naomi handled that, and she summed it up by saying, where you live, I'll live, because you know how to live. If you want to know who to glue yourself to, think about those two things. Who in your life has got some maturity? They've lived for a while and they've learned some of life's lessons. And number two, who has gone through, as David called it, the valley of the shadow of death and come out and you look at the way they conduct themselves and you, themselves and you say, they know how to live. That's who to glue yourself to. Number three, your people be my people. Now, as I said at the beginning of today's talk, a lot of your success in life is going to come down to the people who are around you. So if that's, if that's true, wouldn't it make sense that it's better to have more good people around you than fewer? Well, how do you meet more good people? Well, here's the thing. If you glue yourself to good people, they know good people. They know the right people. And some of the people, and this has been true in my life, some of the people who will be transformative in your life is the people that you meet through the good people in your life. Follow me for a moment. Here's Naomi and Ruth, and Ruth says, and Naomi says, all right, you can go with me. It's not going to be good, but you can go with me. You're glued to me, so I don't guess there's anything I can do about it. And, and they go back to Bethlehem, and sure enough, everybody's going, oh, is that Naomi? Yeah, look at her. And, and what's the deal with this Moabite girl with her? What's that about? And where's Limelech? Where's Malin? Where's Killian? And you know how women can talk sometimes, not always, but sometimes. It's like, <laughs> did you see her? Did you see her hair? She's definitely not wearing makeup. Man, that girl has not, years have not been good to her. And Naomi knows we're talking about her. She, she knows we're saying things about her. And so she just tries to own it herself. And you know how it is sometimes if, if somebody's going to rip you, you just go ahead and rip yourself because, you know, you just, why wait for it? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means beautiful, remember, pleasant? She said, call me Mara. We, eventually we'll get the name Mary from that. Mary, Mary, Mara means crushed or bitter. And she said, just call me bitter because God's been rough, really rough on me. Well, they, they, they move back to town, but they're two, two women. They don't have any way, any means of support. They don't own any land. They don't have any way to make any money. It's just wretched. They're just eating. And, and so Ruth says, hey, there's no sense. It's time for the barley harvest. Ruth says, no sense in a starving death. I'm going to go out to the fields and see if I can pick up what's called gleaning. In those days, the Jewish people were instructed by God not to harvest the corners of their field. Or if they accidentally let grain fall, they were to leave it there in the field for the poor people to come in behind. <laughs> So Ruth said, I'm just going to go out and see if I can pick up some stray pieces of grain, wheat, barley. And so she winds up going to this field. And again, you need to read this because I don't have time to develop the whole story today. But she winds up in the field of this guy, by accident, I guess. A guy by the name of Boaz, who's like the richest guy in town. And he's like a bachelor. And Ruth doesn't know this. But Ruth is just going out to the field. And, and uh, after a while, you know, the owner is just kind of watching her. You know, guys are beautiful gals, and she's just checking and just watching her. After a while, he rides his horse over to her and says, um, Hi, 
Th thanks for coming out today. <laughs> and he said, uh, you just stay right here. You don't need to go to any other fields. I've already instructed my young men not to harass you and mess with you in any way. And, 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 and if anybody tries to hurt you, they'll, they'll take care of you. You just stay right here and glean. And lunchtime, you know, Boaz over there with his people, you know, he's, with a, he's the owner with his group. And they're eating lunch, and they got a picnic lunch out there. And Boaz says to Ruth, hey, 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 come over here and eat with us. And then he even gives her some extra food. And, <laughs> so, and he even instructed his men, drop some of the grain on purpose. You know how guys are. <laughs> drop some of it on purpose. So Ruth goes home, and she's got gleaning. But Naomi knows this ain't ordinary gleaning. This gal's got a whole truckload of stuff here. And, <laughs> and Naomi said, God's been good to you today. And Ruth said, yeah. Said, I was working over here at the field of this guy named Boaz. Does that ring a bell? Boaz. At that point, all of Naomi's antenna go up. Boaz. Gal, there's a deal that we Jews have that you don't know about. It's called the kinsman redeemer. And in that way, if a woman's marrying her husband dies, then you know, the closest male relative has the, well, we call it first dibs. He's got the first opportunity to marry you. He is a candidate. <laughs> You can read the story when you go home. But in any event, Naomi says, there was a point where Naomi says, you need to just like stake your claim and let him know who you are. And Naomi does. In effect, basically, she says to, to Boaz, my husband was closely related to you, and if you want to, you can redeem me. And Boaz is all over that. And they get married. Here's my point. Boaz was definitely the right people. <laughs> but Ruth isn't going to meet Boaz if she doesn't cling tightly to Naomi. You want to meet the right people? You hang with the right people. You want to build your network with people who will help you get to the top? Then you cling to people who know where they're going and know how to live. And if you do that, you'll meet the right people. All right, let's finish this up. She said, where you're going, I'm going because you know where to go. Where you live, I'll live because you know how to live. Your people will be my people because you know the right people. And number four, your God will be my God. That's the most important of all. As I shared with you, Ruth came from a really rough circumstance. She didn't know anything about God, totally pagan existence, but she knew that her God caused her people to go nowhere. And, and she knew that Naomi's God was the true God, and she was saying, listen, I want to worship the true God. If you want to go to the top, hang with people who worship the true God. Now, I want to just really parse that out for a moment, because in, in all these years of pastoring, one of the things that I hear sometimes is when people, and by the way, what I've talked to you about today is most important when it comes to choosing a mate, choosing a life partner. You want, to, you want to get together with somebody who's going somewhere and knows where they're going. You want to be with somebody, you know, who, who lives because they know how to live. They, have, they know the right people, and especially they worship the true God. Really important. But I've had people tell me, well, Mark, I'm marrying this guy. I think he went to church when he was little. He says he's a Christian. Oh, boy. If, you know, I could, t I could keep you here till Jesus comes talking to you about jerks who've told me they were Christians. Hey, listen, if somebody worships the true God, you know they worship the true God. God is in their life. I mean, God is first in their life. And what they do, they're constantly thinking about God. And so I love this. Ruth was saying to Naomi, your God will be my God because you know the true God. 
That really worked out for Ruth. Because when she started following the true God, God started doing incredible things in her life. I'll close with this. Yeah, of course, Ruth and Boaz get married, and a little while later she gets pregnant. And if you read the chapter that's the end of the book, chapter 4, you'll read how that they had a son, and then he had a son. And their grandson was the father of King David. Pretty cool, huh? But if you know the ancestry of David, you'll, you'll, you'll know it's even bigger than that. Because if you open up Matt, here's the deal. If you were to run a, a name search or a word search on Ruth's name, all the, all, the, all the mentions of Ruth are in the book of Ruth, except for one. In Matthew chapter 1, in the family tree of Jesus. In fact, when you're going through that family tree of Jesus, there's just this one little blurb about Ruth. Because see, Ruth was the great, 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 generations removed, grandmother of Jesus. How big is that? I got to thinking about this yesterday. I was working out and getting ready for the message. And, and, and while I was working out, I was thinking about, about this. You know, the night Jesus was born, heaven was a mess. I mean, just really went crazy. Um, everybody was wild. If there ever was a time God had a hard time controlling heaven, it was that night. Is everybody was so excited? Angels doing chest bumps and fists. I mean, it, <laughs> they were all over the place. They were singing all over the sky. It was crazy, and you can imagine why. I mean, this is God's plan. God was, he, he, you know, this is God's plan of redemption. Four thousand years, God is saying, "I got a plan in place. I'm going to send the Son. He's the solution. I'm going to send Him, and He's going to forget. He's going to make a way for people to be forgiven of their sins." So heaven knows what's going on. And boy, when when that when that baby's born in Bethlehem, the place was crazy. I got to think about this again. You know how my imagination runs away with me. In all the pandemonium up there, I can sort of see Ruth because I know how grandmothers are. And I, mean, I sort of see it in my mind as Ruth goes up to God and says, Can I have a peek? She wants to see the baby. And I sort of see it like this. I, mean, I don't know for sure this happened like this, but I sort of see God sort of opening back the curtain and and Ruth gets an opportunity to look at something going on in, in her hometown of Bethlehem. And I see her as she looks through the curtain and looks into the face of her great-grandbaby, son of God. Get that snapshot? Try telling that gal it doesn't matter who you hang with. Father, thank you for what you've taught us today. Now, God, you've you, you got to make this individual with us. Help us to know who the right people are. And help us to know who we need to cut from the herd. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me just one more minute? I just talked to you about Jesus coming into our world. The most wonderful new beginning happens when we invite him personally into our lives. Because when he comes in, several things happen. We're forgiven of our sins. We're adopted into God's family. And we're given the assurance of everlasting life. Not, you know, here's the deal. When you read the Bible, it doesn't say do, 
do this and you'll go to heaven. It doesn't say join, join this place and you'll be all right. It doesn't say give this money and you'll be okay. It just says believe. Over and over and over, hundreds of times, believe. That's all God wants from you. He wants you to believe the message that he loves you enough to send his son into the world to die in your place and to rise from the grave. God, here's the deal. He wants you to put 100% of your confidence in Jesus. None in you, none in the church, none in religion, none in your good works. 100% in what Jesus Christ did for you. And here's the Bible, that if you do that, whoever believes on him has everlasting life. All right, now I'm going to pray a prayer. And what this prayer does is it, it just calls out to God and it, it asks Jesus to become your Savior. If you're ready for that moment, you don't have to understand everything about it, but if you're ready for that moment, I'm going to pray a prayer with you. I'm going to pray it slowly because I want you to think about each line and see if you really want to say it to God. These aren't magic words, but if you say these from your heart, God will listen. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe Jesus died for my sin. Would you forgive me? Make me God's child and give me the gift of eternal life. I put 100% of my trust in Jesus. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, I have a gift I want to give you. When you came in, you got a card. You can see there's a backside where you can fill out some information. I've got this little gift. It's got DVDs and cool stuff that will help you know what it means to follow Jesus. Totally free. If you want me to mail it to you, just put your name and address on the card and drop it in the offering bag when it comes by. I'll mail it to you this week. If you're like me and you don't like to wait for anything, you don't have to wait. If you've got a few extra minutes, I'm going to point right behind the cameras. Right out there in the lobby, there are two zones called Guest Services and New Spring Store. Either one of those. You can just bring the card back and say, hey, I prayed with Mark. They won't mess with you. It won't hassle you in any way. Just say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give you this and take it with you. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward to receive the offering. As, uh, as Lance was talking earlier, man, we're just devastated by what's happened in Haiti. Unbelievable. I got a text message from a pastor there, and he was saying they have a church of over 900, and, and he's doing the best he can to figure out who's where. And he said that as far as he can tell, everybody except for about 25 of his church has been affected, either through loss of life or having to, to lose their homes and move away. So if you want to do something for, that, for the Haiti offering, you can just mark your check or you can mark the envelope in addition to your normal giving here. And we're partnering with other Christian organizations to get help there.